Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, one of your three co-hosts. Uh, Max Linsky and Aaron Lamer are the other two. They always join me here for the intro. Hey guys, co-host number two, checking in. <laughs> They're always showing up. <laughs> who's on the uh, Who's on the show this week? Uh, this week I talked to Barrett Swanson. He is a journalist. He's an essayist. Um, his work has appeared in a lot of different magazines, Harper's, The Believer, The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine. Um, and he has a collection of work out called Lost in Summerland, which includes a great piece that he wrote for the Atavist magazine a couple of years ago by the same name. And one of the things I love about his work is he does these sort of immersive reporting pieces. Uh, he did one recently about a TikTok collab house for Harper's. He did one about a kind of men's self-improvement weekend uh, a couple of years ago. And he did one about a home for psychics and mediums called Lilydale. Um, and I just really like talking to him about the lens that he uses to approach that kind of reporting, how much he puts himself into it, his own personal background. And uh, we talked about all of that and kind of how he gets this work done. How much did you guys talk about going on male self-improvement weekends? I mean, a, a good bit. I'm very <laughs> curious about these. Uh, people pay. They pay to go. Instead of going to therapy, they go on these weekends where they do like anger howls in the woods. You know, we've been doing this show for like nine years, you guys. Maybe it's time for us to go on a male self-improvement weekend. <laughs> There's an easier way to improve yourself with an email newsletter from MailChimp. They make it so easy to do it. You can do it from home. And uh, you'll be like looking back in a few years, uh, quite happy with your decision. So thanks to MailChimp. Now here's Evan with Barrett Swanson. Barrett, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. It's good to see you. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start with this TikTok story because... It's so infected my brain when I read it that <laughs> I feel the need to talk about it. So you spent, I think, five days in a house. Yeah, I spent a, a, a long weekend in Los Angeles and toggled between three what are called collab houses, which are 
tenanted by social media influencers of various levels. So they, this particular group clubhouse that I um, spend time with, they had three separate houses and they conceptualized it as a kind of university structure at which I took great umbrage being a university professor, right? Um, but they had Clubhouse BH, which was um, further quote unquote more seasoned influencers. So that was like a, a kind of grad school. And then Clubhouse FDB, where I spent the ma majority of my time was kind of their undergrad setup. And then they had Not A Content House, um, which is since rebranded to I think Just A House or something like that. But that was geared toward their their kind of younger demographic. And they've since expanded and come up with different houses. So they have kind of a whole bouquet of options. They're, they're really kind of cornering the market here. And you described a little uh, in the piece itself, sort of like how it came about that you got there, but maybe describe that because that's that's always one of the questions in these types of stories. I mean, you're, you're a magazine writer. Uh, your book wasn't out at the time, but you're also a professor. Like you are a presence that can be found online. And the idea that whoever is doing publicity for this would sort of let you come do this immersive reporting there can be surprising. So how did it start? Yeah, I mean, I, there was in March of 2020, there was like a, a Cambrian explosion of these houses. The New York Times, I mean, you probably saw some of these pieces. Oh, yeah. right? It seemed yeah, like sure. New York Times was running a kind of deluge of these pieces about the clubhouse. And I kind of offhandedly joked to my editor at Harper's like, hey, maybe I should go check out one of these places. And she said, yes, absolutely. And so I started making inquiries to these various houses. And I think I, I kind of talked with a number of publicists, um, some of whom were incredibly wary of a, of a writer coming in or wanted we're hoping that I would do a kind of profile on one of their influencers and Clubhouse reached out and they said, sure, why don't you, why don't you come out? Did they inquire? Did they do the sort of typical, you know, is this a hit piece? What, what's your angle? That, yeah, I mean, yeah, th there was some of that. Um, I, you know, I sent them a link to Harper's and I think a link to my uh, website. And then during the actual reporting, they, the, some of the talent managers kept asking, is like, this going to be a hit piece? Is this going to be a hit piece? And um, I don't know. I mean, my stuff is, it ends up being a way uh, for me to think about uh, how this is implicating me, right? Like mm -hmm. how I'm especially wary of pieces that end up being some sort of voguish condemnation of, of something or phenomena that just seems ripe for a a takedown or something. I just don't find it particularly compelling as a writer. I won't take those pieces unless I feel like whatever I'm looking at is somehow implicating me or my habits of mind or um, some sort of sh cultural logic that seems bound up with my daily life in some way. Mm -hmm. And did you feel that before you arrived? Yeah, no, it, it it did not. I didn't really know. Um, usually there's a lot of prefatory research that kind of calibrates my thinking in going into a piece. For me, that's a way to sort of create some sort of interpretive lens so that when I go on the reporting trip, I know what I'm looking for. But when you're talking about a collab mansion and the, the sort of infant-like uh, freshness of, of this phenomena, there, was, well, there wasn't a lot for me to take in. And so... I was reading around these issues, but I didn't, I didn't have a sense of what I was going to be looking for. And then 
when I went there, you know, you're spending time with these incredibly genial and, and kind-hearted kids. And they're, they're in a system that is rewarding them for the most inane and kind of ridiculous behavior, right? They're, they're being paid gobs of money for this. And so while I was there, I was just kind of looking, I found myself looking around and being like, well, none of this is like, is especially interesting, right? Like if I'm just dramatizing what it is I'm seeing, a lot of what it is, is college-aged guys horsing around. But the larger mechanism, this kind of scaffolding around them, that's encouraging them to do this. And then once I started talking to them about their interaction with, with TikTok and the ways in which they're beholden to the algorithm or they think about their followings and think about crafting this online persona and some of the ways in which they were characterizing the oh psychic desperation um e even if it was only like in like oblique ways it just felt so kindred to the things i was hearing in my classrooms from students and to some of the things that i think about in relation to my own professional success the ways in which you sort of ingratiate yourself or you you present yourself as a brand and and suddenly having spent enough hours just listening to them talk about this stuff you you start to put it together and say gosh this isn't like it, it would be really easy just to sneer at these kids but they're actually just this sort of well-complected embodiment of these calisthenics that we all perform on social media or in light of social media i should say and and when you're in the environment and you you write a little bit about your role and and they they do make a TikTok with you in it yeah. uh, it sounds like it did quite well i meant to look <laughs> it up and see if i could look at it but um do you try to always be a certain type of person in that that environment like i'm going to be a little standoffish and not 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 a joiner or i am going to be a joiner and i'm going to participate in anything that they'll let me participate in yeah i mean i think you know I started out as a fiction writer, and so I'm trained as a fiction writer and got into to magazine work kind of later in my 20s. And so I think that I'm halfway proficient at kind of figuring out the emotional or psychic ambience of a place and kind of making myself available for that. If, if there's a thing that I sort of pride myself on as a as a writer, it's it's that kind of going into a place and just being able to kind of um, feel the contours, this this sort of emotional contours of a of a situation, and then making myself available for that. Really, kind of, and that's and two. I feel like that that sort of prefatory research. I don't know if you find this as well. The prefatory research kind of clears the emotional space for me to just be present when I go on the actual reporting because I already know. I kind of have a sense, I guess, of the intellectual parameters of the piece, so that when I go, I can just say, okay, these are people in this bewildering and absurd situation um how can i be available to really hear them or hear what's here mm -hmm. and so sometimes yeah it, it thinking about the various pieces like yeah you're always kind of um modulating your repertorial persona based upon the situation like for instance when i went into i hung out with anti-war veterans who started this organic farm and protest community in central wisconsin and coming into that, I was a civilian in their eyes. Like I hadn't served. And right. um, apart from whatever status I held as the, the writer, I, I was also a civilian. And so I had, had to kind of earn their trust. And so I think, yeah, you're constantly thinking about 
what sort of debts do you owe the subject, I guess? Like, what sort of intellectual and emotional debts do you owe them? And how can you make yourself available to them in a way that that serves the piece? And it, it, it also brings to mind the piece you did about the sort of like men's group, yeah. you know, that goes into the, the woods and the lodge and engages in a, in a lot of self-discovery and emotional exploration through different exercises. And a, a sort of similar question arises, which is when you're going into that, obviously you're, you come with a certain skepticism and a certain mm. cynicism perhaps about mm. what they're doing and how much do you kind of play along slash open yourself up to what's actually going on. Yeah, yeah. So that was a, another piece. That was the first piece I did for Harper's in which I was dispatched to Everyman is the, the name of the company. And it was one of men, like a spate of basically like corporate wellness retreat weekends that were putatively tonics for toxic masculinity or ways for men to think about their masculinity and kind of reckon with stressors in their life, etc. And so, yeah, going into that, Sure. I mean, there was there was a large dose of skepticism and what going into it, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how much I would be like emotionally conscripted into the weekend itself. But then you start hearing the testimonies of these very various men who are there and you're, you're hearing about childhood trauma. You're hearing about um, suicide. You're hearing about divorce and financial turmoil and it becomes hard not to become tenderized in some sense to these people and to their situations mm -hmm. and because I was doing a lot of these large groups and small groups and these kind of sometimes very harebrained exercises like the the anger ceremony in the woods you're being exposed to to basically the rawest emotional experiences that some of these men have ever been part of. And so how, as the writer, are you balancing both the impulse to dramatize those events vividly and accurately, but at the same time being emotionally fair to them, right? To, mm -hmm. and, and what I basically, the, the place where I came in that piece was that the utter absence of any kind of intellectual framework for these men to think about their masculinity. Because in essence, the retreat weekend was kind of like a festival of catharsis. There was just, you know, a lot of opportunities to like vent and emote, but not a lot of discussion about, well, what are the sort of cultural narratives that are, that are allowing you to feel the way that you do or conscripting you into a certain way of thinking or certain behaviors, right? Well, how, how might we interrogate those things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Absent anything of that, it, I, I began to f really feel for a lot of these men because they were coming to a place clearly out of, out of some sort of, they'd hit some emotional terminus in their life. They needed a place like this mm -hmm. or they needed a place uh, to sort of reckon with these things. And from my vantage, the, the support that was offered was not um, provided no lasting lattice work for them to understand their experiences. So it was just, it's tricky, right? Like I, I find myself in these places where the animating intellectual energy of the place warrants some sort of clarification and the people with inside of that 
are suffering, right? So it's, I'm, I'm always like finding myself in these kind of dual roles where it's like, I feel emotionally invested in the subject and I'm seeing how the narrative that, that this place or this subculture in which, with which they're interacting is actually perpetuating maybe some of that suffering, even unwittingly. And so I feel like part of what I get really excited about or what I find to be a kind of charismatic or urgent situation is those in which I'm kind of disentangling those two things and kind of holding them both up. And usually doing that involves implicating myself in some way. I mean, it feels like that including yourself in the pieces kind of cuts against this other side of it, which seems inevitable to me. Like, I mean, you said, for instance, with the with the TikTok collab house, you didn't want to write, you know, a screed against these kids and what they're they're doing. It's more about what they're caught up in. But also, as with the men's group, as with the house, there's an absurdity to it that is that is funny mm. and that it can read as mockery just as a description. Yeah. Just the descriptions of it can read as mockery. And I think looking at sort of like the Twitter response to the story, like some people kind of take it that way. Mm. And when you're sitting down to write it, do you have in your mind at all what the, I mean, I don't know if those kids will read it, but uh, whether they will read it that way, like I don't read it that way, actually. I don't read it as mockery but I could see that they might. They might think it was the quote-unquote hit piece that they were afraid of. My hope is that the opening of a piece is kind of this enticement, right? Like, you want to kind of acknowledge to the reader, like, yes, I know, and I'm, I'm here in that same observation. I can see how this is a silly and absurd situation. But with, if the piece is working, at least for me, I find that there's a kind of emotional or thematic undertow where by the end of the piece, I hope anyway that the that that piece feels like my <laughs> I felt for these kids by the end of it. I wish only the best for them and saw them as being part of a system that, however financially remunerative, I, I I worry about you know the psychic toll of of that. So I I kind of see the pieces that I do, and I think I'm thinking too of the piece I did about. Lilydale, which is um, a psychic community, I'm sure we'll talk about that maybe, mm-hmm. where it's another kind of like zany subculture, right? And the, the impulse is to kind of oh, satirize them or, or sort of present this caricature. But it's really a way, like the, the piece is always open in that kind of more skeptical headspace because that's a faithful depiction of where I was at in doing the reporting. Like I started, yeah, going in the TikTok house, like, going into these mansions and it was like super West egg. It's all nouveau rich like stuff. There's like statues of Hercules and there's a, a 16 foot portrait of George Washington on the wall and you're clutching your head. You're like, what, where am I? But by the end of it, you're, you know, that last scene in the piece, the dinner, I was just kind of looking around. And I just felt really sad. I felt, I mean, for a number of different reasons, some of which I talk about in the piece, but I just felt sad and I, wanted to take that sadness seriously like what were the the various reasons why i was sad and so yeah i guess i mean i guess that's a really puffy cheeked way of saying that the piece is meant to, to be read and whole right like by the time you get to the end of it i'm really hoping it's clear that i was not mocking them that i that i was trying to put myself up as much for the reader's scrutiny as anybody else in the piece and that's i find that that i i do that a lot like if I'm going to present 
people in silly situations. And I kind of hasten to to make that clarification. Not silly people, but like people who are steeped in a weird environment. Like if I'm going to depict those things, I only feel comfortable doing so if I'm going to put myself up as a character as well and, and put me on the same kind of playing field as the subject so that I'm kind of triangulating reader, writer, and subject. Hopefully that's the, the end goal is that we're all kind of like, that the camera's kind of panning around and seeing all of us. And at, at some point, I hope that the pieces implicate the reader. I don't know if I'm always successful, but that's like the attempt anyway. Yeah, I, I feel that it did in this particular case. Oh, good, good. <laughs> that's gratifying too. <laughs> Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. a segue into perhaps talking about uh the 18-year-old you and uh not to get too mad about it but what ha- what happens if the current version of you shows up to do a piece on the 18-year-old you what would they hone in on oh my would God. it be foot maybe you wrote about football, wrote about football. maybe it was football yeah i mean maybe in a way you have done it because yeah. you've written about yeah. that time in your life yeah I mean, yeah, it would be it would be football and then like a, a budding interest. I I had I entertained uh, delusions of becoming a speechwriter. I thought I would, you know, like I would do the thing, like be like wearing the beaten leather jacket uh, on the back of the campaign bus and like scribbling speeches for the candidate or whatever. Like that was my dream when I was 18, 19, 20 years old. Well, where the the political speechwriting, you you have a piece about that where you. You sort of link that to a love of the TV show, The West Wing. But is that where it actually derived from, or did you, did it go in the other direction? I think I think I got um, 
I think I got interested, I want to say it was like Carrie, the the Carrie Bush campaign. So whatever, like the 2004 campaign. 2004, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was at school and um, like a lot of people, I think 18, 19 years old got politicized and like got deeply into it. And I remember, you know, I remember being home from school and like jogging around my neighborhood, listening to like the audio versions of inaugural address. Like that's how seriously I got into it. And uh, wow. Yeah, then, yeah, I started watching The West Wing. Oh, God, I can't believe I'm talking about West Wing right now. Um, <laughs> it's like, so, uh, that Sorkin-esque charisma. Uh, yeah, like, I got really into The West Wing, and then I interned in then-Senator Obama's Senate office in Chicago, and then was interning on the campaign for a little while, and was thought I was going to go to D.C. when he won in 2008, but got into an MFA program, and so then rightly or wrongly, decided I was going to try writing. Well, let's talk about that choice because, I mean, it's not just that you interned in his in his campaign, but you were the type of person, like, this is like the story of the person who becomes a speechwriter. It's like, you heard his speech. Yeah. You wrote a letter to the campaign. To the Senate office, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, to the Senate office, right. And they said, I mean, this is his speech to the, to the yeah. convention, his famous speech to the convention. And then you know, they say, why don't you come intern? And I mean, that is the beginning of a story of like your political life. You, so, you can imagine like the, the, the Aaron Sorkin, like triumphant trumpets blaring and yeah, the, like the, the, the gauzy yeah, exactly. edges around the screen. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think in, in some sense, writing was going to happen one way or another. And then um, I had a couple of professors like I think a lot of people I had a couple of professors in undergrad say have you ever heard about this thing called an MFA program and I applied and got into a couple places and I kind of wanted to give myself a shot at, at writing fiction and writing stories that was kind of the, the plan I thought I was just going to be a you know a, a fiction writer but was there I mean you write in in these essays about you know a couple of like tragedies and near tragedies in your early life and was a kind of like exploration of your life part of what was driving you to fiction that you wanted to understand things about your own life that you thought you could explore i feel like you're gonna have to bill me after this conversation because we're gonna be, i mean that's like a very astute uh therapeutic reading of it yeah i mean I, I think that's probably right i mean i don't know that i that i did like an in-depth post facto on like what were the motivations for doing it was kind of a seat of the pants decision like you're you're 20 I think I was 22 or something at that point and I got into an MFA and I was like I could go through door one or door two and I was like well why not go through door two at that point it just felt so everything felt so provisional it's like if it doesn't work out well maybe then I can go to DC and get back in touch with people um yeah but you know in college right my brother had a traumatic brain injury he was assaulted outside of a bar had seven brain contusions um it was a real bleak scene and then um around that same time a best friend from high school uh his body was found in the mississippi river uh drowned after a night of drinking with no explanation really of, of what happened um and around his death bloomed this whole assortment of weird theories but the most predominant of them involved the the smiley face killer theory which was the this idea that this roving gang of of serial killers was 
uh, moving around the Midwest and drowning young men and making it look like accidents related to binge drinking. There was these two retired FBI investigators found marked on rail cars, bridge abutments, near where the bodies were found, this graffiti of, of these smiling faces. And so they started putting together this theory and it became the stuff of true crime discussion boards. And I got kind of enlisted into it during graduate school. And so, yeah, so I think yeah, that's probably right. Maybe the fiction thing was a way for me to make heads or tails of some of those traumas or near or like vicarious traumas. Like, I, I think that that's, you know, like how I conceptualize it, I was like very proximate to these things. Um, and so have been uh, trying to figure out what they mean for me and what it meant to be bear witness to them in such an intimate way. The smiley face killers thing, it just seems like such an early version of almost like a merging of what is everywhere now, which is both this sort of like online sleuthing yeah. we're gonna solve a murder mixed with a kind of conspiracy theory yeah. that is is perpetuated by you know sort of message board culture in yeah. which people are kind of encouraging each other to go deeper and deeper down into it yeah and i wondered what you felt about the people who didn't know him like the people who are just speculating the people who are just out there maybe it's a little more of a game to them mm -hmm. or maybe it's not mm -hmm. but that aspect of it is almost more connected to being a reporter, like going mm -hmm. and investigating something that's not, it's not your tragedy, it's not your situation. Yeah. And I wondered, I wondered how that, that part of it had affected you. Yeah, I mean, and too, I, like, there's a, there's a way in which sort of the essayistic impulse, the conspiratorial impulse, and the sort of literary critical impulse is this kind of interpretation of events, right? And you're kind of piecing together clues and, and trying to make heads or tails of this thing that's irresolvable, fundamentally irresolvable, whether it's the author's intentions or whether it's, you know, this, your friend's tragic death or whether it's this sort of um, crime that's unsolved, the, the impulse is all the same. And so, yeah, it was weird because a lot of the theories on the discussion boards or or within these communities that were looking at the smiley face killer theory, they were, they were running along parallel lines of like things that you would hear in like a grad school seminar, right? Like that, like people were wondering whether it was related to, you know, some sort of blue collar workers going after these entitled college kids or whatever, or so there's like this Marxist element. There was, there was a feminist reading of the drownings. There was, there was like a post nine 11 read of the drownings. And so it was like real, it was really weird to be in graduate school at that point And at that point I was in a class on advanced semiotics for reasons that are still kind of unclear to me. Uh, and it was, it was like the same discussions we were having in that class. It was like, I was seeing it play out on these, in these conspiracy theories. It was just bizarre, just bizarre. But yeah, I mean, uh, I think the the sort of cognitive swerves can be similar sometimes you're kind of piecing things together and maybe that's maybe the whatever queasiness I I feel about that just like scenario that might go some way toward explaining why I'm always like okay but like how are you implicated right because you want <laughs> you're like well, why are you writing about this you know like what what is taking you here so let's talk a little bit about your fiction because here you are writing nonfiction. 
I see in your bio that you've won a pushcart prize, which I understand is a prize for fiction. So it seems like that was going well. Yeah. So what changed? I had some success with a, a story and I found that I w after I had success with the, the story that won the pushcart prize, I just kept writing that same story. I, I'd like, you know, like it was, I kind of got locked into a shtick or um, a, a sort of dramatic calisthenic that I just found, like, I just was writing the same damn story over and over and over again. And my spouse, who's also a writer, she's like, you realize that this is like the kind of same emotional swerves as that other piece, right? And so I, I turned to nonfiction really out of a kind of, just kind of feeling locked up in fiction, just not, no, I had a novel, I won't even call it a novel. I had a, I had a pile of pages that were, <laughs> that concerned, <laughs> concerned a cluster of people. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a yeah, novel. Yeah. Um, and it was really that, that it was the summer, um, and I was supposed to be working on that pile. And a friend of mine told me about this group of anti-war veterans that he'd been hanging out with as part of like a CSA. He was getting his produce from them. And he's like, someone should really go write a piece on, on that community. And at that point, I really didn't know what I was doing. I, had, I just reached out to the guy, Steve Atkinson is his name. And I said, I want to, I don't know whether you're taking, you know, these sorts of queries, but I just want to come out and maybe do a piece. Like I'm thinking of a long piece about you. I'd read some stuff about him online and he seemed pretty interesting. And because I was like glitteringly ignorant about how to do this, I went there every, like pretty much every day for three months. And that's, yeah, that's a lot of material. That's oh, an unfathomable amount oh of material. God. I think the first draft was like 30,000 words. It was like stupidly <laughs> long. And I, my, my poor spouse, I was like, yeah, I think I finished the piece. And I hand her this 30,000 word thing. And she just like, you know, nodded soberly and uh, to immediately was like, you need to cut this in half. Yeah. But um, that, that experience really kind of taught me a couple of different things. The first of which is like, like I liked doing it. Like my, my natural tendency is just kind of stay at home and kind of close off. And these pieces end up kind of nudging me out into experiences that, um, that are clarifying personally, apart from whatever, you know, intellectual things unify them. I think there is some sort of like, there's a personal thing happening too. And did you, um, did you feel like you you took naturally to like the interview process or or the process of sort of hanging around and gathering material and you know when you take notes and when you record and all that sort of stuff yeah i think i mean i just decided i was going to hang out all the time um the first day i went out there i think i spent like three and a half hours out there and so this guy steve atkinson he was a part of ivaw which is iraq veterans against the war and he had he had done like i think i think it was he did hundreds of missions in the green zone in Sadr City. He was the lead driver for a convoy, had post-traumatic stress, and had started this organic farm and protest community in central Wisconsin. And we were out in the furrows that first day, and he's he's giving me the spiel. And you can, I could kind of tell, like even like not having any experience as a journalist at that point, I could just kind of like, 
you can kind of hear the burnished phrases like he's road he's road testing sound bites like you know mm-hmm. and so i just it was like kind of waiting him out like i just like waited him out for like two hours and then he started saying things that were kind of eccentric or just kind of like offbeat and i was like that like that's funny or um and it started to rain and we just kind of sat down in the furrows together and i was like helping him pull thistle and he's like you can come out when, for however long you want so it it kind of taught me like you just kind of have to sit there for a long time and i've really that lesson was indisputably crucial for me just being mm. being willing to talk to someone even if the first half hour hour is unutterably boring or it doesn't seem pertinent at some point like there is at least it's been my experience that these little things the deeper things take a while to get at and they kind of burble to the surface in moments when you're not totally expecting it to happen and i only do like one of these pieces a year or maybe one or two of these pieces a year and so for me it's just like making myself available for that moment to occur and there's a there's a certain like frustration for me when a person who's written like literary fiction just picks up nonfiction. it's like it's like an nba basketball player like coming to the y and just being like i'm gonna play this pickup game and we're kind of like no we're fine <laughs> don't, please don't we all feel like we're pretty good at this but um one aspect that i'm very interested in and i feel like to do this type of stuff like that you would consider like experiential journalism where you you kind of go into an environment and then write about it. You kind of have to have the the confidence that you're going to take someone in and that your thoughts and your impressions of it are going to be worthwhile for readers to consume. And I'm curious for you where you think that confidence derives from, if that makes oh, sense. Oh, God, what? No. Like, I... um the book is really born of a, like a personal crisis that I had in my mid twenties when I was basically like near lethally depressed. And some of the book deals with, um, suicidal ideation, um, and a kind of a headspace where I, I was looking around trying to make heads or tails of like what should have meaning and what shouldn't have meaning. Uh, as a person, apart from apart from my status as a, as a writer, you know, there's a lot of different types of pieces in here. There's there's long form journalism. There's personal essays. There's like a piece of literary criticism, and so yeah, yeah, they all kind of defy their genre in some sense. They all end up kind of becoming about me in in some sense and trying to reckon with those things. So when you say confidence, that is, uh, you know, like I am cataleptically nervous when I go on these assignments. I am full of extreme self-doubt. Um, you know, it's been, this bit, this experience has been gratifying because it was like, there have been some pretty dark headspaces like the last yeah. six or seven years for me and real points where I thought I wasn't going to do this anymore. Like I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to write. And so... I guess there's not there's not a lot of confidence. It's like moments of extreme self-delusion where I like can get myself ramped up to sit down and write and think it's worthwhile and then weeks and weeks and weeks of just 
rethinking everything and not knowing whether I'm, what I'm doing is worthwhile, not know, like being real scared about whether any of this is just personal neuroses or if, whether it's going to resonate with readers. Um, particularly, I mean, you know, the TikTok piece or the, the, the Lilydale piece, like the ends of those pieces, like I didn't know, I didn't know if people would resonate with those, some, some, some of those sadness, like the feeling of deprivation and sadness that I experience in thinking about, you know, crafting like a brand or like feeling, feeling like per personhood is being commodified or that we're being asked to like, think about ourselves as, you know, agents of neoliberalism or whatever. Um, or like in the Lilydale piece, and I talk about suicide, like, I mean, this is going to sound like a platitude or something, but like, there's a way in which there's like a real personal urgency for some of these pieces. Like, like I needed to make heads or tails of, of either the narrative, the cultural narrative that I was exploring or the personal event that took place, be it the drowning or my brother's injury or my own suicidal ideation, that kind of thing. Like the, that the writing ended up being a way of working through those things or coming to some sort of conceptual understanding of them that made them endurable in the end so all this to say is like I don't know like you have these moments where you're like this is good and then the next day you're like wow maybe you should be running a dog shelter or a custodian um <laughs> at, a, at a zoo or something um <laughs> yeah I mean I think that's a better I think what I meant more it was like where do you find the moments when you sit down to actually write the piece? You have to sort of say, like, because I'll come home from a reporting trip and just be like, I've got nothing here worth telling yeah. anyone. Like, I'm just looking through this stuff and it just yeah. seems like it's a waste of time. And you have to find a place where you can say, okay, no, I have this and I have this and I can string this together and it makes, maybe there's something here that's worth handing over to another person and kind of like, how do you like locate those moments? I think, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of the, down the same path path there um it's like how am i and the reader somehow involved in this um particularly because i go into places as we were saying like where you can easily parachute in and just kind of you know like a group of psychics and mediums in upstate new york living in a gated community doing astrology walks and seances like your first impulse is like okay that sounds pretty kooky well, give the background, give the background for that, because I don't think we have, you've referenced it, but I don't think you've explained sort of how you got there. Yeah, so my brother had a traumatic brain injury when he was 22, and in the wake of that experience, he professed to have a number of psychic abilities. He was, he, he claimed to, to have premonitions of things that, that ultimately panned out, or that he was being visited by spirits hearing voices and my, my own impulse and some of my family members first impulse was that he was you know that this was some sort of ghastly consequence or after effect of the the, the trauma to his brain and he kept insisting on these things and slowly other members of my family maybe that started to to buy into some of these things and um they started getting really bad he started having um this was going on for maybe 10 10 or 15 years and they were happening with such frequency that he started to get a little scared. And he had told me about this place called Lilydale, which was in, it's in upstate New York, not far from Buffalo. And it's home to 275 psychics and mediums who every summer kind of opened their gates to like 22,000 tourists. 
And they do, it's like kind of like Epcot for spiritualism. <laughs> there's astrology walks, there's seances, there's automatic drawing classes. And he asked if I wanted to go with him. And I, like as a reporter, I was like my, I was sort of vampirically interested. Like my fangs had descended at that point And I was like, yeah, let's, let's go do that. Uh, and when we get there, um, we we engaged in all manner of spiritualist stuff right like we did this we did psychic readings we did um we did the automatic drawing class we did all the things and we were in a um a workshop uh on enhancing your mediumistic skills with this guy named reverend michael shane and it was like an eight hour workshop we were i mean it was a long time and during the course of that experience or during the course of that workshop all of the members of the class were sort of invited to come up and do this thing called billet readings, which is where you're blindfolded with three layers of, of things. Like there's, they put coins over your eyes, then duct tape, then a blindfold. And then everyone in the room writes out on note cards a number. And on the other side of the, on the note card, there's like a question. And so everyone did this. Um, all the note cards are put in a basket and then the person who's blindfolded kind of tries to read the cards. Everyone did this. No one's doing well. Andy does it, my brother, and um, he gets like 70% of them right. And I, I kind of going into that experience, I was a cold-hearted materialist. Like, yeah. Um, and I, by the end of that trip, I suspended my disbelief in part because of that, but also in part because he had intuited things that were going on with me that I hadn't, that I hadn't told anybody uh, about... Um, about wanting to kill myself. I mean, that's that's what it was about. And he somehow knew that. Does he like being written about? Does he does he read what you've written about him? He does. And he uh he's funny. He, he like takes issue with word choice and he'll he'll like he'll try to like line edit me. Uh but no, I mean he's like it's hard to conjure Andy. He's like I've been telling people he's like Vince Vaughn who hears has psychic experiences uh and works at a tech company so he's like imagine that sort of like a, a, a amalgam of of things but he's like he's always up for whatever and to his credit he was like yeah if you're gonna write this piece write it like tell the truth and when he said that to me i knew that he meant like you're gonna have to talk about the the, the darkest shit in your head um and so i did Okay, I want to ask you a couple other things. Um, one is I'm interested in you. You do fold into a lot of your work the aspect of it that you are a professor and sort of like your students, your relationship with your students. It comes up like it comes up in the TikTok piece. It comes up in other pieces where you sort of self-identify as a professor and both these sort of like economic forces around that, like you describe uh, being an adjunct professor as like the fry cook of <laughs> academia, which I really really liked. I mean, it, use that going forward <laughs> um but how does in a general sense how does teaching writing how does that interplay with your your writing well yeah like i mean that's i think about this a lot like uh, on one level there's like the practical thing which is that because i i, I teach full-time i i don't have this sort of a financial imperative to do pieces that i don't want to do right like that that was kind of the 
the bargain I made with myself, like, as opposed to being like a full-time freelancer, like I, I really choose only like one or two pieces that I think that I, that I desperately feel like I need to do. Um, so there's, there's that element of it. I mean, I have incredibly talented and brilliant students and, um, they are consistently um, forcing me to articulate things about the writing process that are that I would have otherwise left tacit or unspoken or not articulated to myself to the point where I'm coming up with terminology that that ends up being like a useful crutch for me as I'm thinking through a problem. It's like, oh, I'm like burying the backstory or something like that, you know? So just the emergency of having to explain a problem in a text ends up being really useful for me. And then too, there's all sorts of like the nuts and bolts thing. Like, you know, I teach first year composition alongside teaching creative writing classes or lit classes. And I put my students through a kind of grammar boot camp. So that ends up being really useful for me. Just like, you know, working through teaching someone syntax and different sentence structures and that sort of thing. It feels, I mean, it seems like yawningly boring. But it, it ends up being really useful. And weirdly, the students are terribly gratified that someone walked them through these things. But then too, it's like, it's energizing to be about around, around, around young people who are smart. And so, I mean, there's that too. It's just like, they're engaged and thoughtful. I, I mean, I'd consider that to be like the best job on the planet. Like I sit around and I talk with, about stories with smart young people. That's my job. Um, so I feel terribly lucky to be doing that and it I think there's a natural symbiosis too with just like writing this kind of work it's like the the problems that you encounter at the desk turn into lessons that you can kind of work through with your students but I have to say it also and maybe the TikTok piece is too much in my mind but in at least in that one it, it also sounds a little grim like they sound like they're struggling I mean everyone's struggling right now but that there's a more systematic issue that is causing them to struggle more than students you've had in the past yeah. even yes yeah i mean i definitely notice an uptick i mean like a, a seismic uptick in depression and anxiety and they're far more vocal about it too which is good in some sense because they're aware of it and uh, lots of them are you know seeking therapeutic help for that but yeah i mean i think you know and i talk about this in the piece um there's a way in which i think we as a culture are tutoring these young people to see themselves merely in professional terms and the academy and higher education as you know when I thought about becoming a, a professor I mean I see it as like one of the last spaces where we're really countenancing like what does it mean to be a person where should you find meaning in life um, how should we think mindfully about these different social issues how to interrogate a text how to like have media literacy and know what's worthwhile and, and things like that. And there's been a broader change of mind about what the role of a university is, which is to prepare students for the job force. I mean, that was, you know, our governor here in Wisconsin tried to amend the, the UW mission statement from, you know, something like teaching our young people about improving the human condition or something and he wanted to change it to meet the state's workforce needs and when you ask young people to conceptualize themselves purely in terms of economic an economic calculus i think that that's soul withering in a way that's that's it's it's at least legible to me because i see the anxiety mm -hmm. and i see the confusion in my students and 
yeah, I mean, I think that's what makes the job for me even more worthwhile is having occupied some headspaces that that were you know unutterably difficult whatever whatever routes I found out of those headspaces I feel like you know they're owing in some sense to my experience with writing and reading and um books is as sort of reading rainbow-ish as that sounds right (laughs) like it's true and so yeah I mean it's been it's been gratifying for that reason too well, Barrett, thank you very much for coming on. It's been great. Oh, I've really man, enjoyed this it. Is, this is a thrill for me, so I'm just terribly gratified to be here and to talk with you. My pleasure. That's it for this week's Longform Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. And thanks to Barrett Swanson for that conversation. His book is called Lost in Summerland. It's out now. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, to our editor this week, Seth Kelly, and to our intern, Julianne Sato-Parker. Our sponsor, as always, is MailChimp, and we will see you next week. Support for Longform this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.